Well, I want to start this morning with the word grace. Grace. Uh, That word, many of you know this, but that word means unmerited favor. Uh, Getting something that you didn't deserve. It's something beyond what was expected, what was warranted. It's something beyond what you felt entitled to. Grace is another way of saying gift, a gift. And I bring up that word as I get started this morning because it really encapsulates what I want to talk about today, grace. First, I think grace is a good way to describe my just-completed sabbatical. Um, It was a gift. It was an amazing gift uh, to be able to put much of life on pause in order to just refresh, refocus. Uh, I'll tell you, Amy and I both viewed it as a gift from the Lord. Uh, It was the kindness and generosity of our God that gave us this opportunity to take this time at this stage in our life when Amy and I are in our 40s. But there's been some life completed. There's a lot of life ahead. But being able to take time and pause at that stage in our life when our girls are 10 and 13, and many of you know that the next few years are just going to rock it by. But it was a gift to be able to just pause and enjoy life with one another and really think. It was truly grace, a gift from the Lord. But I also want to communicate to you that that grace from the Lord, we view that as a gift from the Lord communicated to us through all of you. It was God's grace through all of you. Uh, You were an instrument of God's grace to us. Uh, Many of you made sacrifices to show us that grace. Many of you exercised faith to give us that much time away. Uh, And I know many of you prayed regularly for our family during that time. You have shown us such grace. And I want to say thank you. And we praise God for the grace that you showed us. And here's the thing. Uh, Although... We don't deserve grace. I mean, that's what makes it grace, right? We don't deserve grace. We all desperately need it. We need grace. And I'll tell you, our sabbatical was like that. It was needed. It was a grace that was needed. Uh, And in that need, we found ourselves refreshed by grace. And, And you know that, right? That's the way that grace works. Grace can be like a breath of fresh air to tired and weary lungs. It can be like a day of sunshine after months of clouds and rain. Or for some of you, like a little rain after too many 90-degree days. But grace, it's like a, like a cool drink of water when you're parched and your mouth feels like sandpaper. And that's what we experienced. That's what we experienced through your gift to us. Now, I want to make sure, though, lest anyone get confused... Uh, What we needed, the grace that we needed, was not, not time away from all of you. Um, We love all of you. And that that was definitely the hardest part of our sabbatical, was being away from all of you. That's why we came back to here to worship two weeks earlier than we were scheduled, because we were just, we're just tired of being away and we missed everybody. So what we needed was not time away from all of you, but what we did need was time to rest. Time to rest. Uh, I'll just tell you, both Amy and I were more weary than we realized. Um, our, few, our first few weeks of our sabbatical was like a detox. Uh, in our exhaustion, we'd let a lot of things build up. Um, 
things we were carrying, things we were harboring, things we just needed to, to get out. But praise God. He's so faithful. He, he led us through all of that. And he led us into a place where we found the grace just to think. Um, hope you understand when I say this. Sometimes thinking, and, and I mean deep thinking, thinking about what is real, what is important, about how we live and approach our lives. Sometimes that kind of thinking is hard. And it's especially hard when you're exhausted. Amen? It's hard when you're weary. And what happens is that instead of being intentional about life and really thinking about things, how we're going to approach things, what things are important, you simply become reactionary, right? You're just reacting. And that's, that's where we were. That's where we were. But then through the sabbatical, we found ourselves with the grace, the space, the time, the energy to just think. And I got to tell you, both Amy and I grew a lot through the sabbatical. We grew in our understanding of ourselves, um, in understanding our relationship and our family better, and especially in understanding healthy and unhealthy ways to approach life. And I'm sharing that all with you this morning because I want you to know that the grace that you showed us, it bore fruit. It bore good fruit. But it wasn't just giving us space to think. It was also the gift of space just to be. Here's what I mean by that. It's easy to fall into the trap of thinking that your life is all about what you do. Right? It's easy to fall into that trap of thinking that your life is all about what you do. And so life becomes that way. It's all about doing. It's all about working through the checklist, running to the next meeting, accomplishing the next task. And so we get in this mode. We get in this mode of racing from one thing to the next, never satisfied, never slowing down, never stopping to just be, to just be present. But this sabbatical afforded us the grace to slow down and do that. We were able to just be with each other and to discover the joy of that I got to just be with Amy I got to just enjoy her company I got to laugh with her we laughed a lot I got to cry with her we did a little bit of that got to just love her and delight in my wife and be reminded yet again I married up uh, my wife is such an amazing person. Such an amazing person. And so are my daughters. And so are my daughters. Uh, those of you with adult children, uh, I'm going to say something that you already know all too well. Time is fleeting. Time is fleeting. Before I know it, Riley, don't be too quick on this, though. But before I know it, you're going to be grown. Anna's going to be grown and off pursuing life of your own. And here's the thing, brothers and sisters, sometimes we get so busy trying to do all the stuff that we feel like we need to do, want to do, have to do, and that we miss the precious opportunities just to be with our kids. But you all gave that to me. You all gave that to me. You graced me with the opportunity not to worry about the next meeting, the next sermon, the next thing on my to-do list, and just enjoy my daughter's. And I can't say thank you enough for that gift. And I learned from that. <laughs> I'll put it this way. I'm trying to learn. 
I'm trying to learn to slow down and just be with people and just enjoy that and not always be thinking about what's next. What's the next thing that I have to do? How do I get through this situation and take care of what's next? I'm trying to learn just to, just to be. But really, the greatest grace that you afforded me, the grace that I was probably most desperate for, more desperate than I realized, was the grace just to be with the Lord. Just to be with the Lord. Some of you know this, but there is a danger that every pastor, every person doing full-time ministry faces. And that's that studying the Bible, prayer, just being a Christian, it can start to feel like your job. And at times... It's a really enjoyable job. But other days, it can start to feel like it's just a job. And it can start to become drudgery. It can start to feel impersonal. It can, it can become, it's just like something that you do. And as I've explained and confessed to our elders, um, that's where I was. That's where I was. I didn't realize the depth of it. I didn't understand how dry and barren my own soul had become. I didn't realize it until I just took extended time to be with the Lord. <laughs> On the sabbatical, I just, I just studied the Bible for myself. I wasn't thinking about the next sermon, the next Bible lesson, the, the next counseling session. I just read and studied and prayed and enjoyed being with the Lord. And like I said a few moments ago, it was like fresh air to tired lungs. It was like a cool drink of water to parched lips. And it clarified things for me. Clarified things for me. Clarified a lot of things for me. Uh, As I come back from this sabbatical, I feel like I'm coming back seeing things more clearly. And I don't mean this in an arrogant way at all, but more maturely than I've been before. Uh, I've shared several of those things with the elders, things that need to change in my life, uh, things the Lord convicted me of, encouraged me in, challenged me with, and also some things that need to change in our church, Uh, things that we need to grow in, things we need to get better at pursuing, and, and you'll be hearing more about all of those things in the weeks and months ahead. But all of those things were, were the grace, the fruit of time just being with the Lord. Just being with the Lord. There is a clarifying power in grace. There's a clarifying power in grace. When we experience grace, it it changes things. Grace helps us to see. It helps us to understand. It helps us to realize things better than we realized them before. There is a clarifying power in grace. And, And that's what I'm praying that we all get to experience as we approach our text for this morning and begin to wrap up this series, The Summer of Psalms. Uh, I'm praying that we all experience this morning the clarifying power of grace. Now, before we jump into our text for this morning, let me just say, I hope that you enjoyed this series this summer. Uh, I hope that that you enjoyed getting to hear from these wonderful brothers in the Lord and, and have them each come in and open for you several of these, these rich gems from the Psalter. I hope that was something that you treasured this summer. And I got to tell you, brothers and sisters, we are so blessed. We are so blessed to be a church in partnership with so many of these faithful brothers, men like George Alvarado, who came in, and Josh Breffel, and Pastor Paul Majak, and so many others. So blessed. Brothers and sisters, we're even more blessed to have 
the Psalter. Amen? To have this divinely inspired book of worship that teaches God's people how to express our hearts, how to express our emotions, how to express our cares and our concerns and our struggles and our joys in worship to our great and glorious God. We are so blessed to have the Psalter. And this morning, I get the blessing of opening up a psalm for you that is very personal to me. It's a psalm that God used in my life uh, at an early age to teach me about my relationship with him. So please take your Bibles, and if you haven't done so already, turn to the book of Psalms, Psalm 40. Psalm 40. Now, as you're turning there, uh, let me just tell you about my first exposure to this psalm. Um, I first came across this psalm early in my teenagers. I think it was around 14. And at the time, I was going through some struggles in my life, and our family was going through some struggles. But in God's grace, he blessed me with the opening verses of this psalm. He blessed me with the opening verses of this psalm on a, on a little piece of cardboard. Um, you see, I had this, this set of verse cards. I think I got them from my grandmother. I can't quite remember but the set of verse cards that came in this little plastic loaf of bread-shaped holder. And the idea with these verse cards was that you would take one out each day and you would read it, and that would become your quote-unquote daily bread, hence the, the little plastic bread holder, for the day. But one day, the verse card that I pulled out was Psalm 40, verses 1 and 2. And I still remember the feeling of, of reading those verses. Uh, the imagery captured me. The picture resonated with me. The words of the psalmist felt like words that I, I needed. They were expressing what I, I, I felt. And I remember, you know, you normally take the little verse card out and read it, you put it back in. That one didn't go back in. I, I kept it on my nightstand and I read that, that little verse card frequently. And it kind of became, um, in my life, like a theme song. Um, this psalm has always had a special place uh, with me. Actually, uh, early in my 30s, I, I had a blog because everybody had a blog. Uh, but I named it Out of the Miry Clay, which is a reference there in verse 2. And that, that was the way I saw my own testimony. So this psalm, especially the opening verses, it's, it's very much like a familiar friend to me. And over the years, uh, 20 years in ministry, um, in sharing my own testimony, I've preached from this psalm many times. Um, but as I thought about opening the psalm with all of you and closing out our series with this, I decided to do something that I've never done before with this psalm. See, instead of simply preaching from this psalm, I'm actually going to spend the next three Sundays preaching through the entirety of this psalm. And I'm doing this because I don't want us to just focus on a few powerful phrases in this psalm and how they connect with our life. I want us to understand instead how this psalm functions as a whole. I want us all to discover together how the lines of this song work together to communicate God's glorious truth. And as you'll see, this, this psalm is beautiful. And it's clarifying. And the message of this psalm is something that I think we all need. But before we begin to, begin to unpack the message of this psalm, let's just read it in its entirety. So follow along now as I read for Psalm 40. I don't always do this, but let's again stand for the reading of God's word. 
Let's stand together and follow along as I read Psalm 40. To the choir master, a psalm of David. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, the song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burn offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. What a beautiful text, amen? Beautiful song. You may go ahead and be seated now. But what I want us to understand as we begin to work through this psalm is that it is a, a multifaceted song of grace. And, and what I mean by that is that this song abounds in grace, but it's not all the same. Did you notice as we were reading that together that there, there are two very different parts to this song? Let me point those out to you. The song here, it opens with a testimony. We see starting in verse 1, running all the way through verse 10, the psalmist is most likely David, but we see him giving his testimony. He's giving a testimony of God's transforming grace in his life. And he, he begins by telling us of God's delivering grace. Find that there in the first three verses. There was a pit, the psalmist was in it, but then God graciously delivered him out of it. But then the, the psalmist's testimony shifts, and he, he, he gives testimony to how that delivering grace, how it changed him, how it transformed him, how that delivering grace was then manifest in his life. It was manifest grace in his life. He became one who trusts the Lord, verse 4. His life was marked by obedience, verses 7 and 8. He became a worshiper, proclaiming the delivering, rescuing grace of God to everyone he could tell, verses 9 and 10. 
So that, that's his testimony. It's his testimony of grace. He's praising God for his transforming grace. But if you really pay attention to what's going on in this psalm, uh, that testimony, that praise, it's just the setup. It's just the setup. It's the foundation piece. It's the launching pad for what's really pressing on the psalmist's heart. You see, right on the heels of that testimony of grace comes a plea, a cry. And guess what? It's a cry for grace. It's a cry for grace. In other words, this one who has experienced transforming grace is now crying out for future grace. Again, look at the text. The psalmist, the psalmist is again describing himself in the midst of trouble. In verse 12, he says, Evils have encompassed me. My, my iniquities have overtaken me. He says, My heart fails me. And then in verse 14, he describes those who seek to snatch away his life, those who delight in his hurt, those who applaud his trouble, saying, Aha! Aha! And that's the equivalent of a verbal high five. These people are rejoicing. In the psalmist's suffering. And so he again calls out to the Lord from his desperation. In verse 13 we read, Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. And then the entire psalm closes with these powerful and sobering words. Verse 17. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay. O my God. And brothers and sisters... What all of this is showing us is the reality of the life of the redeemed. You see, our life as Christians consists of both praise and plea. Both, both celebrations of grace and cries for more of it. But that, that's the reality of our lives. We are both those who have tasted of and who hunger for grace. We both praise God and we cry out for him. That's the reality of life in this fallen world for the people of God. That's the reality. But there's also something else very important that is on display in the way that this psalm works. And brothers and sisters, if we miss this, I think we're going to miss the point of the psalm. You see, in the, the structure of this psalm, the psalmist is showing us, he's teaching us lesson, the psalmist is showing us, mark this, that past grace leads to future confidence in grace. Past grace leads to future confidence in grace. As you read through the psalm, what you discover is that the, the psalmist's testimony of transforming grace, verses 1 to 10, becomes then the grounds, the platform for his confidence in future grace, verses 11 to 17. Again, just look at the text. Look at verse 11. Look at the confidence expressed there in verse 11. As for you, O Lord, I hope you will not restrain your mercy. Is that what it says? What's it say? As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and faithfulness, I hope. Nope. Your steadfast love and faithfulness will ever preserve me. And then look at verse 17. There we read, as for me, I am poor and needy, but, but I hope the Lord takes thought for me. That's what it says. The Lord takes thought for me. Brothers and sisters, that is confidence. That is a confidence in future grace. 
And, and I think that's what this song is all about. It's about singing a song of confident grace. And it's a song that all of God's people can sing and should sing. Not, not presumptuous grace, don't misunderstand me, but confident grace. Confident grace. But here's what this psalm is teaching us. This psalm is, the psalm is teaching us that that confidence starts somewhere. It starts somewhere. It starts way back in verse 1. It starts with our experience of transforming grace. It starts with us seeing and remembering what the Lord has already done for us. You see, brothers and sisters, if we forget our story of grace, what God has already done for us, we won't find ourselves continuing to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Let me say that again. Make sure you don't miss that. When we forget our story of grace, we won't find ourselves continuing to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Instead, what will happen? We'll just try to handle life on our own. We'll just try to handle things on our own. And then where will that lead, brothers and sisters? We will find ourselves discouraged and overwhelmed and exhausted. And I can give testimony to all of that. So we need to look back. We need to go back. We need to go back to our testimony of grace and let it build for us a confidence in future grace. And so, going back is where we're going to head now. So having given you an overview of how this psalm is working, let's start unpacking in our, in our time remaining. Again, we've got three and a half hours left, so. <laughs> you think I'm kidding. <laughs> Um, But let's start unpacking how this psalm begins. So let's go back to the first three verses. And this song here, this psalm, it begins with a reminder of our need. A A reminder of our need. It begins with a call to remember life in the pit. Let me ask you, do you remember life in the pit? And what I mean by that is, do you remember where you were before... The Lord met you and delivered you the, the condition that your life was in. Do you remember your life apart from grace? See, brothers and sisters, I think that too often we get so busy longing for what comes next and we're frustrated with where we are. But that's where our focus is. And we don't stop and look back. We don't look back. <laughs> oh, I want this. I'm frustrated here, but we're not looking back. But the psalmist does. He looks back, he remembers. And, and his description of what he remembers is pretty powerful. He describes where he was there in verse 2 as the pit of destruction and a miry bog. Now let me take a moment to flesh out those two phrases for you. Pit of destruction, miry bog. Uh, that first line, pit of destruction, could also be rendered as a pit of roaring. You see, The Hebrew word that is translated here by the ESV as as destruction is also used elsewhere in the Old Testament to describe the sound of of the sea waves crashing upon the shore. So the the roar of the ocean. And I bring that up because I want you to understand that the destruction that the psalmist is describing is not a, a quiet, fading away into nothing type of destruction. Instead, it's a it's a loud, noisy, crashing destruction. You see, this pit is a place of 
of chaos and tumult. It's a place where life feels like an atom bomb just went off and everything is deafening and everything is in shambles. That's what he's describing. Pit of destruction, noise, chaos. And then the psalmist goes on to describe this place as a miry bog. Now, now miry is just another way of saying muddy. Down in the pit, it's muddy. It's like muddy swampland. And let me ask you this question. What kind of traction do you get in muddy swampland? And everybody ever try to run in muddy swampland or try to climb a little hill in a place like that? What kind of traction do you get? Good traction there? Not at all. And that, that's the picture here. This place is slippery, unstable, uncomfortable. I was reading the, the late, great Charles Spurgeon's Treasury of David. We we'll go through the Psalms, and he was commenting on this passage, and he writes this. He says, this phrase, miry bog, indicates the absence of solid comfort by which sorrow might have been rendered supportable. He then goes on to explain, once give a man good foothold, and the burden is greatly lightened. So there you are in the pit, but you can get good foothold. There's hope, right? Might get out of here. But to be loaded down and be on slimy, slippery clay, unable to get a foothold, he says that's to be tried doubly, adding insult to injury. But that's what the psalmist says it was like. It was like being in a pit where life was blasting in your ears and you couldn't even get your feet underneath you. Now, here's the thing. This psalmist's description of life, saying his life is this way, um, that raises some questions. Questions like, what was going on in the psalmist's life to make it feel this way? Why, why was his life in such a condition that he would describe it this way? Why the miry pit? But look at the text. Do you notice that the psalmist doesn't tell us, does he? Doesn't tell us. He doesn't give us a secret decoder ring here to kind of translate this metaphor. He doesn't give us the backstory. Instead, the psalmist just the psalm just begins, and he's in it. No why, no what happened to get him there, no explanation of what it all represents. There's not a lot of details here. But I think there's a reason for that. I think there's a good reason for that. You see, I think what the psalmist is doing here is he's giving us a powerful yet vague picture so that all of us, all of the redeemed, can relate to it. He's giving us a picture that calls all of us to relate to that feeling. That's the way the Psalms work. <laughs> lots, of, lots of times, that's the way they work. That, that feeling, that feeling of being down in the pit, that feeling of life shouting at you, that feeling of being able to gain any real traction. And here's the thing, for, for each one of us, what created that quote-unquote pit in our life, what, what brought the noise, what knocked your feet out from under you, that might be different for each and every one of us. For some of you, looking back, that pit might have been a life of empty and broken relationships, just jumping from one to another to another to another. For others, that pit might have been a devastating loss of someone that you dearly loved. It might have been Enslavement to substances like drugs and alcohol. Might have been 
the vain pursuit of building a life of wealth and influence only to discover that both are easily lost and never satisfied. For me, at age 14, it was a family that was falling apart and a heart that was dominated by lust and pride and anger. Now, as I mentioned those things, lust and pride and anger, um, it leads me to point out one universal truth that we can glean from this psalmist metaphor. What is the pit? What is life in the pit? Simply put, it's the life of a sinner living in a sin-cursed world, desperately needing rescuing grace. This, in all the various ways that that fleshes out for us, this is what I believe the psalmist wants us to see, wants us to feel, wants us to remember. He wants us to remember our desperate need for rescuing grace. What life was like in a pit. And, and we were desperate for it because, again, look at the text. Look what the psalmist says. Look at the reality of life in the pit. He says, I couldn't fix it. You say, where does it say that, Ryan? I, I don't see that particular phrase in the text. Let me explain. The psalmist says here, I waited patiently. And, and when you first read that, you might get the impression that the psalmist is just down there in the pit and he's just chilling. You know, I waited patiently. You know, and his feet are slipping and it's up to his neck in muck and there's noise, chaos, raging all around. But he's just whistling a tune. He's just chilling. He's just waiting patiently in the pit. Well, that's not really what the psalmist is describing. That's not really what the text is saying. The Hebrew text actually reads, in waiting, I waited. In waiting, I waited. In other words, I had no other choice. I couldn't climb out. I couldn't fix the situation. I couldn't rescue myself from the pit. All I could do was to wait. In waiting, (laughs) I waited. All the psalms could do was wait. Wait and cry out. That's also what the psalmist was doing. Verse 1 there, he speaks of the Lord hearing my cry. Now, that word cry that's used there, it's not just shedding some tears and blowing your nose in your hanky. It's not whining about life in the pit, griping about, you know, the noise is too loud, my shoes are all muddy. Now, the Hebrew word that is used here is a word that the readers of the psalm, that the Hebrew singers of this psalm, would have associated with a cry for deliverance. My cry. That word cry, it's actually a word that is spelled, and it sounds very much in the Hebrew like the word for deliver. There's a little wordplay going on here. That's what this cry was all about. My cry. My cry was, deliver me. Help me. Get me out of this pit. Save me. The psalmist says, I was down in the pit. All I could do was cry out. I wasn't down there just chilling, whistling a tune. All I could do was cry out and wait. That's all I could do was cry out and wait. Let me ask you this question. Think, think about your life. Have you ever been there? Ever been in a situation like that? Well, that's all you could do? Ever been in a situation where you felt so overwhelmed, so helpless, where every step forward was greeted by two steps backwards, three steps backwards, four steps backwards, and all you could do 
was, wait for help. I can't fix this situation. That's where the psalmist was. But what did he do there? (laughs) He realized that he needed grace. And he cried out for it. And he cried out for it. But here's the good news, brothers and sisters. The opening few verses of this psalm are not simply a description of life in the pit. No, they are testimony about getting out of the pit. And that's really what this, the psalmist invites us to remember. Through his own testimony, he invites us all to remember our experience, all of the redeemed to remember our experience with the delivering grace of our Lord. And here's the thing, brothers and sisters, for all of us, we were once in the pit. Amen? We were once in the pit. We were once in the miry bog of our sin and our judgment and the reality of living in it every single day. And it was deafening. We couldn't hear the beauty, the delight, the glory of God. We couldn't get a footing on the truth. We kept slipping all over the place. And there, there was nothing, there was nothing that we could do to climb out of that life. But what we couldn't do, remember, brothers and sisters, what we couldn't do, remember, God did for us. Amen. God did for us. God came down to us. And that's always, brothers and sisters, that's always the beginning movement of grace. That's always the beginning movement of grace, downward. God condescends to us. When you're in the pit, someone's got to come get you out of it, right? And that's what the psalmist says here in verse 1. He says, look at the text, he inclined to me. And the Hebrew verb used here, inclined, it doesn't just mean that God was receptive towards him or favorable towards him. It actually means literally that God bent down. God bent down towards him. God came to where the psalmist was. He got down into the pit, down into the miry bog. He didn't just throw a rope down and say, climb out. He got down in it. And the psalmist says, he he heard me. He heard my cry. He heard me crying out for deliverance. But I want you to understand... This hearing being described here, it's not the same as the way I hear my neighbor's dog at four in the morning, you know, and then cry out, please, somebody shut up that dog. It's not, that's not what's being described here in this text. The psalmist's cry doesn't annoy God, doesn't pester God. The psalmist isn't describing a hearing to which God finally says, okay, fine, I'll come down and help you out. That's not what's going on here. Actually... The Hebrew word that is used here, I love this, means to listen attentively, to pay close attention to and to conform to in response. You see, this hearing being described here is personal and attentive. If we have a right understanding of God and we understand that personal attentive to us, that's awesome, isn't it? I mean, that God responds to us that way? You see, the psalmist is here saying, God heard me. He attended personally. To me, he didn't send a minion. This vast some angels. He attended personally to me. He understood my situation. He listened with understanding. And the beautiful thing, brothers and sisters, is this is here in this text for all God's people to understand. That is God's approach to all of us. Not just the psalmist, that's God's approach to all of us. He hears you. He listens to you. 
He enters into your life. Think about this. He enters into your life with understanding like, like a good father should. Like a good spouse should. Like a good friend does. He enters and listens with understanding. Isn't that awesome? You say, who am I? That the God of all the universe would incline to me, would hear me. But, praise God, he doesn't just come down and listen to us. He, doesn't just, he didn't just climb in the pit with the psalmist and say, man, it is, it's muddy in here. It's noisy. Oh, boy, you are right. This is a really difficult place. I'm sorry you're going through this. No, what does the psalmist say? The psalmist says, God bent down. He heard me. He understood the situation. And verse 2, he drew me up. <laughs> He delivered me. He rescued me. And that's what this testimony is all about. The delivering, rescuing grace of God. And brothers and sisters, that's the reality of our God. Our God is a God who rescues. Amen? Our God is a rescuing God. I mean, this book is full of that. Amen? It's full of it. From cover to cover. Time and time and time and time and time and time again we see God rescuing his people. He clothes Adam and Eve in their sin and shame, covers their sin and shame. He saves Noah and Noah's family through the ark. We read it this morning. He delivered Abraham and Sarah from their barrenness. He rescues Jacob from the consequences of his brotherly stupidity. He lifts Joseph from bondage to the throne of Egypt. And he lifts Joseph's brothers out of their guilt into family reconciliation. And that's just some of the things that we see in the book of Genesis, right? And we could go back. We could go back and talk about Moses in the river, the Hebrews in the Exodus, Joshua in Jericho, Ruth the Moabitess. Over and over and over and over again, we have these powerful stories, these real stories of our God. Our God is a God who rescues. He is the God who delivers his people. And the redeemed of the Lord know it. Amen? The redeemed of the Lord know it. They sing with the psalmist, he drew me up. He drew me up out of the pit of destruction. He drew me up out of the miry clay. He drew me up out of the ruin of my life that was caused by sin and foolishness and my shame. He drew me up. The redeemed sing, God save me, great is the Lord. Amen? He drew me up, psalmist says, and he set my feet upon a rock. Here's the wonderful thing. God doesn't just pull us out of the pit. He establishes, us, he establishes us in something so much better. So much better. Here in verse 2, the psalmist describes that place as a rock. But what you need to understand is that this isn't just like some little rock, like the kind you might find in the midst of a stream and you're trying to tiptoe across the stream on these slippery rocks. That's not the picture being created here. No, this rock that the psalmist is talking about is more like a mountain. It's like a mountain. Here, the Hebrew here actually uses a word... That is found throughout the Psalms to describe a mountain fortress, a stronghold, that kind of rock. But here's what I found really interesting. This word isn't just used in the Psalms 
to describe a stronghold and a fortress. It's actually often used throughout the Psalms as part of a metaphor to describe God as our stronghold and fortress. And that's what's going on here. The psalmist is saying God brought me to himself. I'm no longer away from him, struggling down in the pit. Instead, I'm on the rock. I'm with my God. He is now my fortress. He has brought me to himself. And here we don't just have a new location. We have a solid foundation. The psalmist says in the end of verse 2, he set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. In other words, now my feet are firmly fixed in place. It's not like when I was down there in the pit, slipping in the mud, couldn't get traction, couldn't have any hope. No, now I have a foundation. God, my rock is my foundation, and that's a stable place. Amen? That's a stable place. God, my rock is my foundation, and his deliverance is my song. The psalmist says, verse 3, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Now, now don't overthink this new song. This new song was put in the psalmist's mouth through the deliverance. You see, this new song is his testimony of God delivering him from the pit, the miry clay. It's a song praising God for God's rescuing grace. But if we, as we understand that, brothers and sisters, There's a very important lesson for us then in this new song. Here's the lesson. You see, our our deliverance, our rescue, it never reaches its true climax, its true end until it leads to praise. Our deliverance, our rescue, it never reaches its true climax until it leads us to praise. Why do I say that? Because the goal of everything is not simply our deliverance. The goal of everything is the glory of God. Amen? That's the goal of everything. And so, those who are delivered, yet do not sing, their deliverance is stunted. Their deliverance is distorted. Their deliverance is perverted. It's not reached its true end. They aren't like the psalmist. They they need to learn that the true climax of deliverance is not our feet touching down upon the rock, but our lips opening up in praise. That's the true climax of our deliverance. But when we do learn that, brothers and sisters, when when the redeemed do sing of their Redeemer, guess what? Our redemption starts to impact more than just ourselves. Our redemption starts to impact more than just ourselves. The psalmist says, look at the text, Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. I'm going to sing it. And many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. You see, when God works in your life, and people see that, when they see how God is working in your life, when they hear from your mouth how God, not, not your cleverness, but how God delivered you. When they witness then the transformation of your testimony, that's who I used to be, now this is who I am. When they see how you used to be in the pit, whatever that was for you, and how God brought you out of it, how he delivered you through it, how he poured out his grace upon you, when people really see that, it does something to people. 
when we continually give praise to God for his grace, his evident grace in our life, it's manifest, it opens the door in other people's life for reverence of God, which then builds a platform for trust in God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. You see, seeing leads to reverence, and reverence builds a platform for trust. And that's the platform that the psalmist wants to give to all of us through this song. He wants us to remember. He wants us to remember how God delivers his own and allow that testimony to become a platform, a launching pad for our continued trust in the Lord. He he wants us to join with him in saying, as for me, I'm poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought from me. He wants us to join with him in singing. Oh, Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. He wants us to live a life of confident grace. But in order to get there, brothers and sisters, we need to go back. We need to go back. We need to remember the pit. We need to remember what it was like. We need to remember the pit, what it was like, and then we need to marvel And how God came to us there. How God heard us there. How he took hold of us there. Do you remember that? How he took hold of you there? And how he brought you up out of that muck? Brought you to himself? And brothers and sisters, do you know how you remember that most vividly? Do you know how you remember that most vividly? This might surprise some of you. How do you remember that most vividly? Not simply by remembering the circumstances of your personal testimony. Now, that's part of it. But we remember God's grace coming to us most vividly by fixing our gaze upon the cross. By fixing our gaze upon the cross. For there, at the cross, God did come down to us. God, the Son, took upon himself our sin, our shame, our judgment. He got in the pit with us and he wore it. He wore it. And he too cried out. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he waited. And he waited. And he died. And he was buried. But on the third day, something happened, didn't it? Something happened. God, who had come down, he lifted all of his people up out of the pit. And the resurrection of Jesus, through the resurrection of Jesus, God drew us all up. He drew us up out of our sin. He drew us up out of our shame. He drew us up out of our guilt and the penalty of death that was hanging over all of us. And when Jesus ascended on high, praise Jesus, he seated us all with him in the heavenly places. He brought us to the rock and gave us a foundation that can never be shaken. And this is the story of all the redeemed. This is the testimony of all those who cry out to the Lord in faith. This is our song. And we need to remember. We need to remember the confidence that that gives us. Dave and I didn't partner together on this. We didn't plan this this morning. Sings Romans chapter 8. What I had in my notes at this point in the 
sermon, the confidence that the gospel gives. Again, we sang these words. Apostle Paul, Romans chapter 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Let me ask you, brothers and sisters, is that the confidence that you're living with? Is that the confidence that you're living in? Is that the way you're clinging to future grace? Are you singing a song of confident grace? Or have you forgotten? And you're trying to do it all on your own. Trying to do it all on your own. Have you lost sight of his grace? Again, there is a clarifying power in grace. The more you fix your gaze upon it, the more you will see your situation more clearly and the more confidently as a child of God you will face your situation. There is a clarifying power of grace and may God through his spirit help us all to see that, to see our life in the light of the rescuing grace that was showed to us through the cross of Jesus. And to help us in that pursuit, fixing our gaze on those things, the Lord not only left us his word, texts like this, but he also gave us the table. He gave us the Lord's table. And here we celebrate grace, we remind ourselves of grace, we gather together and let the gospel preach to our hearts. This is what has been done for you. This is the love of the Lord for you. What have you to fear? Christ has been given for you and you are redeemed. So I'll ask the men to come forward at this time. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I know that in and of myself, all the things we've just talked about in these last moments, in and of myself, with my own efforts, they're just words. But you know my heart, you know my desire, I pray for each and every one that's here. All who have experienced the redeeming grace of our Lord. Um, that you, by your spirit, you'd bring them back to that place. They'd remember. They remember who they were, where they were, what life felt like in the pit. And you would remind them again of how you have rescued them, how you have changed them, how you have delivered them. You would remind them of your great, powerful mercy at work in their lives. And I pray that you would use that reminder that, that you would meet with them through this text, bringing them back to that place, meet with them, remind them of who you are, how you have been with them, and you would use that reminder to propel them forward in the situations that lay ahead of them. That you would guard them through the clarifying power of grace. You would guard them from from slipping into self-reliance, slipping into discouragement and despair, becoming anxious, you would, you would guard them from that. You would remind them that, that they have been brought to the rock. They are with you. 
Your, your steadfast love, your faithfulness is focused upon them. Your thoughts are for them. And help them live in that confidence. Help me live in that confidence. Help us all to remember if God is for us, who can be against us? And walk and live as people who really believe that truth. But Lord, in order to bring us to that place, we need the Spirit of God to work in us. We need you to meet with us. So I pray that, that through this Lord's day, you would do that. And I thank you for giving us this time now around the Lord's table. And I pray that as brothers and sisters take the, the bread and the cup, they would have this time with you. And you would remind them of who you are for them. Your grace towards them. Your love that envelops them. And it would give them confidence and freedom. Boldness to live as the people of God. I thank you for the freeing power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help immerse our hearts in it. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.